If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of John, chapter 5, and we are beginning in verse 31, and we're going to read through 47, so you can follow along as I read. These are the words of Jesus. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? And so we've been walking through this series, a study on the Gospel of John in a series called Believe. And each week as we look at a different passage in this story, in John's account of the life of Jesus, we are seeing the person and the work of Jesus being put on full display before us. And over and over the shout from John and the shout from Jesus himself is to believe. But what does it really mean for us to believe in Jesus? When you think about it, there are a lot of people in this world, even in the church, who are willing to believe a lot of different things about Jesus. There are many who think that Jesus was kind, that he was compassionate. There are many that think Jesus was a wise teacher, uh, that he was a great teacher. There are many who even think that Jesus was sinless and that he was a prophet and that he could do supernatural works. Richard Dawkins, a leading atheist and part of the new atheism movement, an extremely vocal critic of Christianity and all organized religion, a few years ago he showed up to an event and he was wearing a shirt that said, Atheists for Jesus. And as you can imagine, that caught a lot of people's attention. And after the event, he was asked by a reporter why he wore that shirt. And this is what he said. He said, the point that I wanted to make was that Jesus was a good man and that a man of his time had to be religious because everybody was. But I suspect that if he had the knowledge we have today, he probably would have been an atheist and he probably would have been a good man. So even those most opposed to the Christian faith are still willing to believe certain aspects about Jesus that they find to be most appealing. And in doing so, essentially are creating uh, a Jesus that suits them or fits them well. My parents, a few weeks ago, they took my daughter Lila to Build-A-Bear at the Galleria. 
And for those of you that aren't familiar uh, with Build-A-Bear, it's exactly like it sounds. You go and you build bears. And kids really love it. And I found out that there are some adults who really love it as well. And you go in and you walk in and you just have hundreds and hundreds of options that you are choosing from to create the perfect bear for yourself. Choosing the bear, choosing the clothes, the accessories that this bear is gonna wear. Um, choosing, even filling the bear full of stuffing. Uh, you can give the bear a heart to bring it alive. And just for a few extra dollars, which I feel like is kind of the tagline for Build-A-Bear, you can also record your voice. And so now you have this voice. And so basically it was a dream world for my daughter. And she was able to create the bear. She actually got two bears because it was her birthday. Um, she gave us a create a couple of bears that were just custom made to her perfection. And she loved everything about them. But when we get to the gospel of John and when we look at the person and the work of Jesus, unlike Build-A-Bear, we aren't stepping into a build-your-own-Jesus experience. We aren't presented with a list of options or character traits about Jesus and then we get to pick and choose and kind of mix together to create a Jesus that's believable to us. As we've talked about earlier in this series, John gives us not only the purpose for writing his gospel, but he also gives us the full picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what we are to believe exactly about him. So you'll remember at the end of John, he gives us that purpose statement, John 20, 31. He says, but these are written, talking about this account of Jesus, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus doesn't just call us to believe that he is kind or that he is a great teacher or that he is sinless or that he is a moral example. He calls us to believe that he is the son of God, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the Lord and savior of the world who lived a sinless life who died on a cross accepting punishment for our sin, who was raised from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, and who now offers forgiveness and new life to any who will turn from their sin and trust in him. That's the Jesus that we are called to believe in. That's who we are called to put our complete trust in. That's who we are called to surrender our lives to. And no matter where you may be on your faith journey this morning, that kind of belief is hard to come by. In fact, that kind of belief in Jesus is a miraculous work of God on the human heart. Even in our passage today, we see uh, Jesus pointing out a reason that uh, he isn't accepted. In verse 40, he says, you are not willing to come to me. A, a few chapters before in John 3, uh, he says, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So just pointing out, showing us that in our natural state, on our own, there is a, a refusal and an unwillingness to believe these things about Jesus. So what this means is that whether you have no interest at all in following Jesus or you are a new believer or you have been walking with God following Christ for decades, we have a dependence on Jesus, not just to change our hearts, but to keep our hearts, to keep us believing in him, to keep us believing, to keep our faith in him strong and steadfast for the duration of this life. We are dependent on God to believe and we need his help. 
So we come to John 5, we come to our passage, and we are stepping into the middle of a confrontation with Jesus and a group of Jewish leaders who were infuriated about claims Jesus had made a few verses earlier. And Jesus claimed in these verses that he was the Son of God, meaning that he was the promised Messiah, meaning that he was claiming to be equal with God. But in response to their anger and to their offense and to their really unwillingness to believe, Jesus lays out his supporting evidence for his claims. He calls on four witnesses to testify about him, and then he kind of flips this pseudo court case on its head and offers up an indictment on these men who have accused him. And so this morning, we're going to look at these four witnesses and these two warnings that Jesus gives. And my hope is that we will clearly see how Jesus offers us the life-saving and life-keeping help that we need to believe. And then how that fuels uh, our mission of taking the message of life to the world. And so in verses 31 through 39, Jesus identifies four different witnesses who testify on his behalf. And I've listed them there at the top of your listening guide. We have God the Father, we have John the Baptist, we have Jesus' own works, and we have the scriptures. And so we have four witnesses we're going to look at. And we're gonna look at each one and we're gonna see how Jesus is using them to help us believe. So the first witness that Jesus offers up is God the Father. Referring to the Father, Jesus says in verse 32, there is another who testifies about me and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. And it's who Jesus is talking about in verse 30, one verse before when he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He combines both of those statements in verse 37 when he says, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. Jesus says that not only is he here to do the father's will, but he also has the father's full approval and validation. And we can see that approval at the baptism of Jesus, right? In Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized, we hear the father saying, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see the father affirming Jesus and giving his full approval and validating that he truly is the son of God. And it's interesting that at the end of verse 32, Jesus says, I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Jesus as the son of God also has an intimate personal knowledge of the father's will, approval, the father's approval and the father's testimony to him. Something that, that only Jesus himself was fully aware of. We didn't know, but he knew, I know, not you know, but I know. This means that Jesus didn't question if what he was saying and teaching was true. He didn't question if what he was doing was pleasing to the Father. He knew the answer. He was completely confident that he was doing God's will. He isn't like us in that regard. One of my favorite TV shows of all time and one of the greatest comedy shows of all time is The Office. And The Office is a mockumentary that follows the life of employees at a company called Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Uh, and one of the best episodes of that uh, is an episode where Dwight, who is the assistant to the regional manager, stages a fire in the office to test the employee's fire safety skills. 
And as you can imagine, this turns out uh, terribly very quick. It turns into pure chaos and it all culminates with one of the employees, Stanley, having some sort of heart episode and collapsing. And so after the fire and after everything's done, Michael Scott, who is the manager and the star of the show, is reflecting on his leadership during this entire debacle. And here's what he has to say. We found ourselves on the less prepared side of things when Stanley had his, when his heart went berserk. And I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. I'm not sure about you, but at least for me, that is one of the most relatable quotes from the show. Just a great demonstration of the fake it till you make it kind of mindset that many of us feel and live with at times, especially when it comes to knowing and doing God's will. But Jesus, who was sent on a mission from the Father, didn't need to fake it till he made it. He knew that nothing he did walking on this earth was outside of the Father's will. He knew that um, he wasn't hoping his life pleased the Father. He knew that his life pleased the Father. He wasn't hoping that the Father loved him. He knew that the Father loved him. Jesus was in perfect unity, perfect love, perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit from the beginning of time. But how does that really help us? How does that help us believe? How does the Father's testimony that only Jesus himself is fully aware of, fully aware of, and only Jesus himself fully understands, how does that help us believe? Well, think about for a minute what that says about why Jesus came in the first place. And this is in your notes. Jesus' call to believe is motivated by his love for the Father, not his need of love for us. If God the Father had affirmed the mission and identity of Jesus, then Jesus did not come because he needed our approval or our affirmation of who he is. He didn't come, he doesn't have an identity crisis that he's trying to solve. He doesn't have a savior complex that's only fixed when he's helping people. He isn't on the search for love and completeness. He had all of that, perfect and complete with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus doesn't need us to believe in him, but he loves us because he loves the Father and he loves who the Father loves and he responds and acts accordingly. You think about one of the most famous verses of all time, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And the next verse, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. The Father's witness to Jesus means that, there, that he has come and Jesus has no ulterior motive by making salvation possible. It's not a gimmick, it's not a trick, it's not a bait and switch, like so many things and so many relationships in this world seem to be. I mean, isn't that the kind of love, the kind of relationship that we all desperately are seeking relationships that are real, that are authentic, that don't have an angle, they don't have an agenda. They're not being used uh, as manipulation. And that's what Jesus is offering to us. Uh, last week I was downtown um, and eating dinner with a friend and we ended up uh, striking up a conversation with a, a man who was sitting at our table and just through the course of our conversation heard a lot about his life and this man had just lived an incredibly difficult and painful life. Just 
a lot of suffering, and a lot of it came at the hands of, of other people. And as we talked to him, I could just hear and feel the hopelessness that he had about his life. And it opened up the door for me to, to be able to share about the hope that is found in Jesus, even talking about some of the things we're talking about today. And as we talked about the gospel and new life in Christ and the promise of eternal life, eventually I stopped and I asked him, what do you think about these things that we're talking about? What, what kind of thoughts do you have about it? And he said, you know, it sounds really great, but I don't trust good things being offered like that because people always have a motive. I've just been thinking about that a lot this week. I pray that God will open his eyes and his heart to see what we see from the text this morning, that Jesus coming to save his people is an act motivated by the mercy and love that the Father has for us and his desire to see former rebels and enemies enter into his kingdom as sons and daughters. Second witness we see is John the Baptist. We've already heard from John the Baptist in chapter one of John. Remember, he announced Jesus' coming in John 1:29. behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here Jesus tells us that John's witness was also true. The sole purpose of the ministry of John the Baptist was to point to Jesus. Verse 30, 35 says that John was a burning and a shining lamp, that he wasn't the light, but he was the lamp showing off the light. John's ministry was defined by constant deflection to Jesus. I'm not great, he is. I'm not the one you're looking for, he is. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. One of the things John points, Jesus points out about John's testimony speaks again to the motivations that Jesus has in coming in the first place. Verse 34, Jesus says, I don't receive human testimony. So in other words, I don't need John to validate me, vouch for me for who I am. But he says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. One of the greatest witnesses to the world of the hope that Jesus offers is through the transformed lives of his followers. Not because Jesus needs man's validation, but as a means of displaying his saving power to the world. That's why he tells his followers in, in Acts 1, right, that you are going to go and you're going to be equipped with the same spirit that I have been equipped with. You're going to be sent on the same mission of the Father that I have been doing, and you will be my witnesses. John the Baptist's example teaches us that is in your outline, belief lived out in the Christian life is a burning and shining lamp that points to Jesus. That's why as a church, we wanna be equipped in having gospel conversations. We have opportunities coming up in the next couple of months where you can go and learn how to share your faith. We want that to be a part of the culture here that just as easily as we talk about the Iron Bowl or the impeachment process or our favorite episodes of The Office, that we authentically and passionately talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has come to give life. It's also why we see welcoming graciously as one of our pursuits as a church. Our transformed lives in Christ should overflow into the lives of others as we go to the nations, as we go to our cities, as we go to our workplaces, to our friends, to our families. 
as we go to church gatherings, especially as we go to our neighborhoods and our homes. I love how Rosaria Butterfield talks about, uh, specifically about the, the neighborhood and home aspect of this in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. We are burning and shining lamps when we are helping people hear and see and feel and taste authentic Christianity, the Son of God. The world has to know who Jesus is if they are going to believe in him. And it has been tasked to us to proclaim that message. Jesus also says that his own works testify to who he is. So the third witness is Jesus' own works. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Everything about the life, everything about Jesus' life was meant to testify to the reality that he was the son of God. Everything he said, everything he taught, every healing, every wine-filled wedding, every time he read someone's thoughts, every time he knew someone's heart, every supernatural conversation, every feeding of thousands of people were meant to be a megaphone to the world that he is God, that he is the promised Messiah. And in that day, the works Jesus accomplished were not left up for speculation or debate. Uh, They were not done in private. They were done in public places with lots of daylight, lots of people. Even in John 5, in the beginning of our chapter, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and he leaves before the man can get his name. But eventually, Jesus comes back and finds him and tells him who he is that has done this miracle. It was clear in Jesus' day that, super, that the supernatural works had taken place and that they had been done by Jesus. When I was younger, um, I had an infatuation with Bigfoot, the Sasquatch. And actually maybe still a little bit uh, do now. But th- there are people who have spent their lives trying to discover, trying to grasp, catch Bigfoot. There have been documentaries made, there have been movies made, there has been research done, there's been merchandise sold all around this idea, really hoping that at some point somebody could catch this elusive creature one day. But until that time, what we're left with is stories from folks who really don't seem like they're the most trustworthy of sources and grainy, out of focus, half photos and videos. When I was in middle school, I went to uh, a church camp, and I will use the word church very loosely here, um, nothing like collide. And the speaker there, for some reason, had a bunch of artifacts and things that he was bringing to prove the existence of various things. One of the things he had was a footprint of Bigfoot in a mold, giant footprint, probably this big. He said it was from Bigfoot. My fifth grade mind, that was the silver bullet that I've been waiting for all of my life. I knew that was it. The one thing I wanted to do was just confirm with him where he got it from. So after he gave his talk, I went up to him and 
met him and told him I was super interested in this thing. That was really awesome that he had it. And I said, sir, could you tell me where you got that from? And he looked at me and he said, all you need to know is if you ever meet him, you better say yes, sir. And in that moment, my dreams were crushed. The myth of Bigfoot continued to live on. When we think about the works of Jesus, the miracles and the signs he performed, we aren't looking at a blurry picture like we're looking at Bigfoot. They were, they were meant to be seen. His works were not in the woods away from everyone. They were with people. They were meant to be seen. Even in Matthew 12, the Pharisees who hated Jesus and wanted him uh, to be put to death, they didn't deny the works that he was doing. Instead, they just attributed his works to Satan. They couldn't say that they weren't happening. They just said, actually, he's doing this on behalf of the devil. So we see that there. Jesus' works serve as a witness to the reality that he was the son of God. And his works throughout the gospel are building up and they're moving to his greatest work, his main work, the reason he was sent to earth, his death and resurrection from the grave, conquering sin and death. The witness of Jesus' work should be especially encouraging for believers who may be doubting God this morning. It's so easy for life circumstances to cause us to call into question everything that we know to be true about God. And I just wanna say, if you are here and, and that's where you are for any reason, having doubts or questions about God or his goodness to you or his care for you or his love for you, or even if God likes you, let the final work of Christ answer those questions and bring hope and confidence to you this morning. If you are doubting God's love for you, remember the life of his son that was given up on your behalf. When you were facing sickness or suffering, when you would love a break from family drama, when you would love a break from broken relationships, when loneliness makes you question if God really does give good gifts, when you'd really just love to have a month that didn't end with you thinking that you're gonna be in a financial crisis, when you would love a couple of days in a row without anxiety or depression, and that seems like a dream world to you. When you're crying out, God, do you really care about me? God, do you really want what's best for me? God, are you really for me? Remember Jesus on the cross. God sent his only son to the cross for you. Remember what was accomplished at the cross and through the resurrection. If you are in Christ, if you believe that he is the son of God, hold on to the promise that this life may be difficult, but this life is not all that there is. Let the work accomplished by Jesus be a witness that keeps your eyes and your heart set on what's ahead. There's a day coming when there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more sadness, no more sickness. It will just be the bride of Christ in the presence of Christ, in the new creation of Christ for all of eternity. The works of Jesus help us believe. The final witness that Jesus calls in this text is the scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. There was no one who knew the Old Testament scriptures better than these Jewish scholars did. 
that invested their lives into knowing every single thing about the Old Testament. Every minute detail, every punctuation mark of scripture, they could quote the law, they could quote the prophets, they could quote the Psalms, they could tell you all 613 of the Old Testament commands, and then they could let you know how they were doing at keeping all of them. But their motivation, their hope, was in thinking that a knowledge of the scripture was where their salvation would come from, which seemed to work well if you were a religious scholar who spent all of your days studying the Bible. But the glaring indictment that Jesus makes to these men, so proud of their ability to quote and understand the Old Testament, was that they had missed the entire point of Scripture. The Scriptures were pointing to Jesus. God gave us His Word to show us His Son so that we might believe. God gave us His Word to show us His Son so that we might believe. The Bible is not an end in itself, but it's a means to an end, Jesus. A couple of years ago, uh, I was able to go on a trip to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, went with Scott James and a few others. And one afternoon we went to lunch in this big tall building that overlooked the city. Um, it's one of those places where you sit and then it just spins in a circle around the city and you get to see everything. And so originally I tried to set up a time-lapse video, but there was a massive pole in front of my camera the whole time, so that was a major fail. But I did get a picture of it, and I think we have a copy of that picture today. And so, you know, if I was to show this picture with you, or if I was to pull it up on my phone, or even now as we're talking about it, and the thing that I talked about and hyped up the most is I said, you know what was amazing about that? Look at how beautiful the window is that you're looking through. You, there are no specs on that window. It is a triple pane glass. The contractors did an incredible job. I mean, you can't even tell that you're looking through a window, but um, it is just a beautiful window. And then I ended the conversation and I put the picture away. Never once acknowledged or mentioned the, the beautiful city in the background that the window is helping us see. That'd be kind of sad and it would be a little strange too. I would have clearly missed the point. In the same way, when we come to the Word of God, it is a window that we are looking into and it is showing us Jesus. Not just the Gospel accounts, not just the New Testament, but from Genesis to Revelation is revealing Christ to us. So should we spend our lives being saturated in the Word? Yes, of course. Should we seek Bible knowledge and maturity in our understanding of the Word? Yes, should we seek to be transformed by the power of the word, absolutely. And we do it not because it's required for, for salvation, but because it reveals to us the means of salvation. Maybe our desire to know God's word and be changed by his word should be more and not less when we know who it's revealing to us. And the scripture helps us see Jesus and believe. And so those are the four witnesses to the deity of Christ. They not only serve as evidence to help us believe, but they should serve as a confident reminder to us as we live out our God-given mission of calling of others, calling others to come and see and believe. I just wanna briefly also look at the two warnings that Jesus gives us in verses 40 through 47 and see what they help us avoid. First one here on your outline, desiring the approval of man over the approval of God, which is a barrier to belief. It's what it helps us avoid. 
Verse 42, Jesus says, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. Think about how jarring that statement must have been to these religious scholars who had prided themselves on all that they had done to know God. In fact, Jesus doesn't just say that they don't believe, he says they can't believe. Verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? One of the biggest hindrances to belief is the desire for the glory or the approval of people over that of God. Ray Ortland preached a, a sermon on this text and one of the things he said about these verses was really striking to me. He asked the question, do you realize that wanting too much to be liked by people blocks out the love of God? It will be easier for us to be caught up in the glory of Jesus if we'll care less about being glorified by people. Is your desire for the approval of others hindering your desire for God? It may be that it's difficult for you to believe all that God has done and said and promised because of a desire for the approval of man. It was for these men in our text. They flat out rejected Jesus partly because they loved the praise that they were receiving from one another. Are there people whose approval you're desperately seeking who are a hindrance to your belief in Jesus and the total approval and acceptance and a love that he has already given? Are you willing to give up whatever that may be in return to God who through Christ has already given you full, perfect, unchanging approval for now and all of eternity? The second warning Jesus mentions is putting our confidence for salvation in our best effort at being good people instead of in the finished work of Christ. Jesus' last verses in chapter five leave another ringing indictment in the ears of their hearers. Verse 45, Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you have set your hope. Ultimately, Jesus is not going to be the one who accuses them. It will be Moses who gave them the law and who they revered greatly. But when Moses gave them the law, they took it uh, and, and read it and felt like they were doing pretty good at keeping it and believed that uh, these laws were attainable and that they can keep uh, the laws and their salvation will be given. The, the warning that Jesus gives us here is not in being failures, but in being confident in our moral success. Believing that somehow my accomplishments, my moral character has had a positive influence on my salvation. But remember what we said at the very beginning of this sermon, that we need Jesus not just to believe, but to keep our belief. It's not Jesus saves and then I do the rest until we get to heaven, but we are dependent on him throughout this life to keep us, to empower us for good works, to empower us to pursue holiness, to empower us to be conformed to his image. We are desperate for him, we need him. If they would have truly listened to Moses, then they would have seen that he was pointing to a divine intervention that they desperately needed, that he was pointing to Jesus. Even the law that Moses gave was pointing to someone greater who would come and make a way for us to salvation. So Brooke Hills, 
So we've got three words for you. Three words and a couple of applications for three categories of people this morning. For unwilling hearts, for doubters, and for believers. First word, obvious from the text, is believe. Believe. Have you believed? Hope and life and eternal salvation is offered to anyone at any time who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus to forgive. You can know God today. Maybe you've been on the fence about following Jesus, but I want you to know you can leave this church knowing God, believing God, in relationship with God, having peace with God. It is possible for you to leave here today with that. After the service, we'll have some of our ministry leaders up here who would love to have a conversation with you about that or love to, to pray with you as you are thinking through that. But know that you can know God today. Second word, remember. Remember. Even as those who believed, even as those who are walking with Christ, we have wandering hearts, don't we? We are constantly in need of reminding ourselves of God's goodness to us. How can you remind yourself of God's mercy to you in Christ this week? One idea that I thought of that uh, I've tried in the past and may try again is just making a note on your phone of all the ways that God has been merciful to you, keeping a running tab of the ways God has cared for you, starting with salvation, starting with the gospel and working from there. And in those moments when I'm tempted to question God's care or God's goodness or God's love for me, I can go back to these truths and see, no, I know here's how God has shown that he has cared for me and be reminded of his goodness to me. And then the last word is witness. Last word is witness. If you are a follower of Christ, you are now a witness to his gospel. How will you do that this year? You know, God has um, has uniquely given us as the Church of Brook Hills so many opportunities to be part of his mission. Through city ministries, through uh, going globally to the unreached, we have um, access to be a part of his mission. We, a few weeks ago, we had our small group leader training for our singles groups. And one of the questions that I asked all of our leaders to answer um, was the question, who's your one? Who is one person that you are gonna commit to pray for and to share Christ with during the coming year. And so maybe that's a, uh, something I would invite you to do well. Who is one name that you could write down that you would commit to pray for and commit to share Christ with in 2020? Church, the, the greatest news that has ever been given to us is that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the promised Messiah, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his witnesses call out to us to come and to see and to believe so that you may have life.